In today's episode, we're taking an in-depth look at quality in long-term care with Dr. Paul Katz, who is Professor of Geriatrics at FSU College of Medicine and Project Director of the North and Central Florida GWEP. He is a widely published author and noted speaker on aging issues. Before coming to the FSU College of Medicine in May 2015, he was a professor in the Department of Medicine at the University of Toronto. He previously served as Chief of the Division of Geriatrics and Aging at the University of Rochester School of Medicine and for 16 years was Medical Director at Monroe Community Hospital, a highly regarded academic nursing home in Rochester, New York. He also spent five years as Chief of Staff for Research at the Canandaigua Veterans Administration Medical Center and Rochester VA Clinic. Dr. Katz is past president of AMDA, the Society for Post-Acute and Long-Term Care Medicine. He has co-edited 11 books and has over 120 scholarly publications. Dr. Katz has received grants from the National Institutes of Health, the U.S. Veterans Administration, the Health Resources and Services Administration, HRSA, and the Ontario Ministry of Health and Long-Term Care. Good afternoon, Paul. It's such a pleasure to welcome you to our SF GWEP podcast, and I wanted to thank you for your time and expertise. Can we start by you telling us why the topic of quality in long-term care is important to you? Uh, it's a pleasure to be here, Nishira. Thank you. Well, I think uh, any any healthcare professional is inherently going to be interested in quality, how care is delivered, and the outcomes. I've always been interested since the start of my career in geriatrics in uh, trying to get a handle on what some people refer to as the value proposition for medical providers in the nursing home. And once you start to look more deeply into this topic, you find that the impact of the attending physician and by extension nurse practitioners and physician assistants on the quality of care in uh, nursing homes and in long-term care even more generally is very understudied and to some extent much of it is unknown. We do know and I think you and I can vouch from anecdotal experience that medical care practices are variable in nursing homes and assisted Indeed. living often oftentimes suboptimal. This is in the context uh, over the past several years where we're seeing increased complexity of the patients we care for and um and basically, that as, as providers in long-term care and nursing homes specifically, I've always made the point that our skill set is often underappreciated, which I have referred to in the past as a credibility gap. That's a whole other talk. But that's kind of why, why I'm interested in, uh, in quality. And as you and I know, nursing homes are now really not just rest homes anymore. The acuity is very high the knowledge demand and the complexity of care that we provide has changed incredibly over the past few years. Absolutely. And that's why in today's discussion, you know, I'll be referring even more broadly to, I hate the word institutional, but more institutional long-term care, which would include assisted living or residential care as it's known in Canada. And as you said, the, um, the level of care, the complexity is higher in nursing homes and assisted living in many respects are looking like nursing homes did just a few years ago. So as we talk about quality and how we deliver care, it's it's important that we really think of both of those types of care together. 
So quality is important, obviously, to measure. And uh, what quality measures are currently used in nursing homes and in assisted living settings? Yeah, thank you. And if you'll indulge me, I'm going to just back up a little bit and kind of state the obvious that, you know, if you get to the general question of how you define quality, and quality is clearly in the eyes of the beholder. When I speak formally on this topic, I'll often show the that picture of the elephant and surrounded by several scientists. And the scientist that's looking at the uh, the tail says, this is, this is what an elephant looks like, the one on the tusks or the legs. Everyone has their own perception. So when, you know, when we talk about defining quality, let's say a nursing home specifically, it is important. And, and we'll get to this discussion in a minute. But for example, you, when you ask a resident of a, in a nursing home what they think of quality, then you start thinking of quality of life measures. You know, is the food tasty? Is it warm? Do I have an opportunity to socialize? If I want a bath, can I get it? Those are very important. So yes. we don't usually measure those. If you ask the nursing home administrator what quality is, they may tell you it's how many beds I have filled or what is my rehospitalization rate so I don't get fined. If you ask a nurse or the nursing leader in a nursing home what quality is, they may refer to uh, do I have enough staffing? What's my turnover rate? So you can go on and on. So in answer to your question, though, most of the quality measures that are used in nursing homes are dictated by the federal government. And the majority of those are based on the minimum data set, which, um, as you know, was conceptualized many decades ago and really forms the basis of how we measure quality. A lot of those measures based on the MDS are outcome-based. What's the level of incontinence or depression, depressive symptoms in your facility? What is your rehospitalization rate? How many antipsychotics do you use? Do your uh, residents experience the functional loss that's unpredicted? Those are all publicly reported. All residents in nursing homes will, through the MDS, have those calculated and, and reassessed on a quarterly basis. So then the question comes up, kind of the gist of today's discussion is, are those good quality measures? And, um, you know, you, you, we can argue about that. I think on one point, they are what they are, and they're, they're measuring important aspects of care, so we shouldn't throw them out. But when we start to get into the weeds about how a medical provider mm-hmm. uh, is performing, what is their quality, I think you can make a fairly good argument that those MDS publicly reported measures are not specific to the medical provider. They reflect, in most part, what the system is doing, what the team is doing. So I'll give you an example. If, for example, you take an MDS measure of how many nursing home-acquired pressure ulcers you get, and let's say it's higher than the average, is that because the physician or nurse practitioner or PA team are not performing good care? Or is it because the nursing home doesn't have enough money to provide the the mattresses to prevent pressure ulcers or the wound care equipment? Or is it because they can't hire a wound care nurse, et cetera, et cetera? Or because the nursing aides are not performing as they should in turning the patient every two hours? So it's a very complex equation. But you can see where the medical provider themselves really are not at the crux of that measure. Depends but, on so many um 
actions by members of the team and the facility exactly. itself. Exactly. Even you talk about measures like how much antipsychotics are used in a facility. You could say, well, the, the physicians have to prescribe an antipsychotic. Of course, it's, it's a physician quality measure. And to some extent, it is. There is a responsibility there. But on other hands, when the on-call physician gets a call from the nursing home at midnight on a Friday on a patient they're not aware of, and the nurse is panicking because the, the resident is striking out and physically aggressive, you can see how sometimes antipsychotics get ordered because the system in the nursing home is not set up to deal with those sorts of issues in a timely and efficient way. So a very long-winded explanation to say that we need other measures if we're going to really find out the role of the medical provider. So, Paul, that begs the question, how can we measure quality of care actually provided by medical providers? Yeah, and that's, Nishira, that's been a major uh, thrust of my uh, uh, research interest for the past several years. I've been fortunate to work with a team from McMaster University, University of Toronto, and colleagues from the Netherlands over the past several years on trying to come up with quality measures that indeed are specific to the medical provider, uh, i.e. physician, nurse practitioner, physician assistant. We initially um, framed these around nursing home practice and around uh, use the AMDA competency as kind of a core guide. But I do think they would certainly be applicable to assisted living and other long-term care venues. So the question is why don't we use MDS measures? We, I think I've already alluded to the fact that MDS measures are not specific enough for our profession. So we use the much of the quality measures that were derived from the ACO project several years ago, Assessing Care of Vulnerable Elders Project, done at UCLA and RAND, and used many of those measures that were initially derived for older, frail patients in the community and some had been translated to the nursing home environment. We used those as a core, supplemented those, used a Delphi approach, convened an expert panel uh, of individuals from Canada, U.S., and Europe, and over actually several months, uh, whittled down the number of potential quality measures based on validity and feasibility. Are they feasible to apply mm -hmm. in a nursing home setting? And would they be accepted? So based on those criteria, we initially came down to a set of 99. Clearly, 99 is, is, is way too many. After another series with the expert panel and the research group, the research team, we've narrowed those down to a set of about 12 to 15. Again, remind the audience that these are process-based measures. So I'll give you an example. I mentioned that MDF measures are primarily outcome. How many pressure ulcers do you have? What's your pre prevalence of incontinence? Process-based measures, you have to really assess by reading the notes, what's documented in the chart, what, what was the provider thinking, what did they do? So let's take a fall, for example. The fact that someone falls in a nursing home may not necessarily mean that you're doing something bad that's bad quality. It might, but it may be that you put everything into place, you did a standard acceptable assessment, and the patient still fell for a number of underlying physiologic reasons. So the quality measures that we've come up with are framed like the ACOG measures using an if-then statement. If Mrs. Smith falls, then what would you expect to be done to address the fall? 
And then you, you come up with, well, I would expect the, the patient to have a, a good medication review. I would expect the patient to have a good physical with a focus on neurologic and musculoskeletal assessment, since that's the uh, genesis of many falls. So in order to do well on that measure, we would review the chart and look anywhere in the chart, particularly the progress note and the nurse's notes, to see in fact if the provider did that. Within a certain agreed-upon time frame, someone falls and that assessment doesn't take place for a year, then that's not good quality either. It has to be close enough to the event that you can do something. So when you see that, that action was taken, it was a standard approach, it was well thought out, and the patient still fell, you can't really say that the quality from the medical provider was poor. We have uh, come up with multiple measures, uh, again, capturing most of the major domains that are articulated in the AMDA competencies around medication management, advanced directives, et cetera. Where we are now with that project is we're seeking additional funding to hopefully be able to use an electronic medical record and artificial intelligence approaches to mitigate the need for a person going through the chart meticulously and spending a lot of time. I'm impressed by the diligence of the work that you've done. And I feel that so far we have had too much of chart review, review of the electronic health records, searching for causes. Uh, and I value what you've said as a, a bedside assessment. One of my pet sayings is, if all else fails, go and look at the patient. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I have to mention, too, we're trying to, to prove that these quality measures are predictive of outcomes, because if we don't eventually do that, you can't say, for example, and show the government that using these measures kind of define a good quality medical provider practice. And those relate to, for example, lower costs, decreased hospitalization rates, lower, uh, better satisfaction on the part of the nurses, et cetera. If we can't show some of those outcomes, then we're never going to get a policy change. And what I didn't mention, and I'll mention now, is that these measures are focused on competency, what we think a reasonable provider should be doing. We have hypothesized, and there's some emerging evidence that suggests this is true, that commitment and the organizational structure of the medical practice are also predictive of quality. And can I, I don't think we have time in this podcast to go through this, but there is a fair amount of fair literature that says those individuals, those providers who devote in a meaningful way, the majority of their practice to long-term care, probably do a better job. Yes, I've uh, read and, some of that work. Right. And likewise, it relates to the kind of medical staff organizational structure you have. So if you have a closed staff with fairly rigorous standards to be credentialed and you communicate effectively, you share calls, you have coherent, agreed upon policies, et cetera. Those are the closed staff models probably do better. Now, some of the evidence is suggestive. Some of it, we have a lot more to go. There's, for example, uh, much talk about SNFIS, skilled nursing facility, it's like hospital list. Mm -hmm. And there is some of the research shows that SNF is defined as those providers devoting at least 80, probably 90 percent of all their Medicare billing to nursing homes do a better job. But I think what we're trying to do is that may be too general of a definition of a SNF because if you're a provider and you have a, a large practice, let's say 
2,000 patients, and you're medical director of 10 facilities, and we see this going on around the country. Indeed. Is that is that person really, a, they may qualify as a snippet because all they're billing is nursing homes, but they're seeing way too many residents. No one can provide good care with that amount of volume. So we really have to better define what numbers of patients is reasonable for a practice. And that can be a practice of physicians, nurse practitioners, PAs. So again, we, we're working on that. It's another line of inquiry. I just wondered, I, uh, Paul, how do you think staffing ratios, actual staffing ratios in facilities yeah. impact the quality of care and also maybe what the providers can and cannot do? Yeah, that's a great question. Many may be aware that the National Academies of Science recently came out within the last couple of months of a report on really how to improve quality in nursing homes. And workforce was prominent in that report, particularly what you're referring to as staffing ratios. Most of the literature focuses on nurse staff ratios. How many hours per resident per day do we think is optimum in terms of delivering quality care to nursing home residents. And that certain amount is attributed to RNs, certain amount to LPNs, and a certain amount to certified nursing assistants. That's the bulk. But the literature suggests that the higher the number of hours uh, delivers better quality. The problem is many nursing homes in many states do not mandate those ratios. They suggest you need to provide as much staff as necessary to provide the the quality needs, but we're far away. So the report, and uh, this was even mentioned in President Biden's address, that we need reforms to increase the staffing ratios, which means we need more funding. And whether we will get more funding to do that is an option. So we can say you need to have four hours per resident per day, but if there's no funding, or particularly in the environment, the post-COVID environment we're in now, you can't recruit nurses, you can't find them, it's going to be a real stretch. And now, certainly nursing it, home assistance too. Recruitment is difficult, retention, and they're really exactly. not paid adequately. Exactly. And, you know, when you're talking of turnover rates of 100% for certified nursing assistants, it's very hard to get a stable workforce. Now, when you come to positions, what I was alluding to is the same staffing ratio. We're going to need to define what those ratios are. We're not there yet. And I think it has to be reasonable. Many physicians don't like to hear that because they base their practice on volume. It's just, that's just not the way to uh, to practice as far as I'm concerned. I also, I'm, I want to go back a little bit because initially I talked about assisted living as being on the spectrum we should be looking at. And whereas the federal government basically defines the quality measures to be reported in all nursing homes in this country, assisted living does not have such a mandate. Uh, primarily because they're not federally regulated. As you know, they're state regulated. The state's variability is very high. So there is no common set of quality measures that all assisted living facilities must uh, obtain and report. That's uh, the focus of much debate in the industry. Many, such as myself, are calling for more regulations, not necessarily the intensity of nursing home regulations we see, but something that will help the consumer choose what's a good assisted living and what's a bad one, just like we do for nursing homes on the five-star rating. And we don't have that right now for assisted living facilities. No, not at all. We're not even close. And what compounds Um, it is they're accepting sicker patients 
I believe 70% right. of assisted living patients have dementia. Correct. Very, very much that overlap with nursing homes is significant. In fact, the average age in assisted living is much higher than in nursing homes. And, you know, people are aging in place there. So we definitely need to measure quality better there. If anyone's interested listening, there was a, a, a great review article by Burke and Werner in the uh, MJ Quality um, a Safety Journal in 2019. They mentioned that quality measures have proliferated as part of what they term the quality measurement industrial complex. <laughs> I think it's a great term because mm-hmm. everyone's talking about quality measures, but they're not having the discussion we're having today about are they of value and, and really what are they measuring. They also point out in this paper that there's been a weak and unpredictable relationship between nursing home quality measures and one of the outcomes that most people are most interested in, that is hospitalization. They also mentioned that pay for performance, which yes. has been a big issue for physicians, has produced mixed and generally small improvement in patient outcomes and costs. So we're spending billions and billions of dollars in this country on this quality measurement complex and pay for performance when the evidence really isn't showing that it's working. In fact, uh, there's another report I found quite interesting that this was reported by McLean in the New England Journal of Medicine in 2018, that two-thirds of physicians and this, these are not long-term care physicians, these are physicians in general, do not believe the current quality measures capture physician quality. So it's not only the nursing home industry and assisted living, it's everywhere. We really need to rethink what we're doing. I find that this uh, extensive discussion we're now having nationally about value-based care is often looking at finances and cost of care and healthcare utilization. Right. And I question, really, value to whom? What is right. the value it's, to patients, to the system, to the government? Right. As you and I know as geriatricians, should I get dinged if my 85-year-old doesn't get a mammogram? Uh, is, that, that's not a quality measure. It's important. Or if the A1C, you know, I know I'm speaking to an endocrinologist, so I have to be careful, but if the A1C mm-hmm. is 8 in our frail 90-year-olds, should we get dinged because it's not within the parameters that the government set? No, we really need to rethink all of this. So, Paul, to put you on the spot, where do we go from here? What what do we need to do in terms of research, funding, uh, public policy changes? Yeah. Well, I think that as the, the National Academy report indicates that we do need a lot more research, not only on the relationship between nurse staffing and outcomes, because we do have a fair amount there. We're going to need enhanced funding to, to actually show that if we, enhance, if we increase staffing ratios, uh, they actually work. On the medical provider side, we need the research to show that the quality measures, for example, the ones we're proposing, uh, the provider quality uh, measures, really work when they're applied on a larger scale and they're predictive of outcomes. And then you can work backwards, I think. For example, if we find that there's better provider quality in closed medical staff environments, then I can envision policy changes that would basically make that happen and that would improve quality across the board. But that's going to be a lot, many years, a lot of research, and um, but we need to go in that direction. Unfortunately, 
you know, nursing homes and assisted living have not been the hotbed of active investigation. But I, I, I kind of see that changing with the demographics of the population, so I'm hopeful. At the same time, we've been the hotbed of active regulation. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Dr. Paul Katz, thank you so much for joining us today and sharing your expertise. This has been a great conversation, and I'm sure we could continue this for a long time. And it's been such a pleasure having you on this podcast. And take care. And thank you. Thank you so much for the opportunity. Please stay tuned for upcoming topics from our renowned subject matter experts.